Welcome to Israel from the Inside, where we try to break out of the echo chamber, surfacing the wide array of often conflicting viewpoints that make up the mosaic of Israeli life. I'm Daniel Gordas of Shalem College in Jerusalem. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can subscribe to these podcasts and join our community of listeners and readers, access the archive of all these episodes, and post comments, interacting with others who share your interest in Zionism, Israel, and the future of the Jewish state. I have the pleasure of speaking today with Alon Tal, who is a longtime friend. Uh, Alon, you and I were uh, actually in Young Judea together back in the 1970s. I think three of us back from our Young Judea days actually drank the Kool-Aid and ended up in here in Israel. You, as an MK, um, Noah Efron, who is a very distinguished professor at Bar Ilan, and me, uh, perhaps some others as well. I don't know. We're the three that I know about. Uh, this is a very busy day for you. Uh, Israel is obviously mourning the loss of Rabbi Kanievsky, and there's apparently some sort of a million people on the way to the funeral, or on the way back from the funeral now, and the country's kind of at a standstill in the Tel Aviv area. Uh, you and other members of the Knesset are about to go in a very short while to listen to President Zelensky of Ukraine. Uh, and in the midst of all of this, you've made time to have a brief conversation with me, which I'm very, very grateful for. Brief word about why I wanted to have this conversation with you. Uh, the issue with Ukraine is by far the most controversial thing that I have posted about in the approximately year that I've been doing this uh, Substack recording and column. I featured the person who actually was one of the people who founded Breaking the Silence, a very controversial left-wing organization. And people wrote back and said, yeah, that was interesting. I thought you should have pushed them harder, but that was interesting. I featured an Israeli Arab, oh, sorry, an East Jerusalem Arab woman who talked about how afraid Arabs were to come into West Jerusalem because the government was doing X, Y, and Z and not protecting them. A little bit of pushback, not a lot. The issue of Ukrainian refugees has become a kind of a touchstorm. I wrote something personally saying that I thought we should allow more in. It got a whole lot of reaction. I published something from a friend who responded saying that we should not allow allow in, not allow, allow a lot of them in, touched off another kind of a storm. And so I wanted to speak with you, uh, someone who is from blue and white, someone who's been part of the Benny Gantz political story from the very beginning, someone who's really a centrist, uh, to get some feedback from you as to uh, how we should think about how Israel's doing, how we should think about this Ukrainian refugee issue, what all of this war and the horror unfolding in Eastern Europe means for Israel in the international community. Uh, so I want to thank you very, very much for taking the time to be with us today. Well, to start with, for the last uh, 30 years or so, I've always characterize myself as sort of an academic, as an activist tra trapped in the body of an academic. And although I was many years uh, teaching environmental policy, I still felt like I had more of a contribution to make to Israel. And so many times I, I attempted to get in the Knesset. And uh, I think on the sixth or seventh try, it, it worked out. And that was really because I was fortunate when I was in the army, uh, my company commander, the paratroopers was Benny Gantz. And so when he formed a party, 
I basically showed up and said, what can I do? And I helped write a bit of the, uh, the platform and, and took a number way back in the list. But when things went south for him in terms of his popularity and a lot of people left the ship, I was one of the last sailors on the, board, on the, on the deck and uh, it seems to have paid off. But I'm really very grateful to be here in the Knesset. It's, it's a, a, a tremendous privilege. I really feel that way is for somebody to come and move to Israel and really be in the, the legislative body of the Third Jewish Commonwealth. I, I don't take that lightly at all. And uh, I work very, very hard. But I find that it's, uh, it's really the most interesting job I ever had and the most promising uh, one in terms of being able to make a difference. So it's really great to be here. And I feel uh, just last sentence is that because I am the only American born and raised member of Knesset, one of the uh, responsibilities I have is not only to represent the people who voted for blue and white or for anybody else, but also for all of the um, people, uh, the English speakers in the American Jewish community from which I uh, came, they should feel that they have a representative who understands them, identifies them and represents them in Israel's parliament. Right, and you also understand American Jews who don't live in Israel, which is one of the many reasons that I wanted to speak to you today. You have your finger very much on the pulse of what is the world's second largest Jewish community. Uh, and you know how people are very concerned about this. Let's jump right into Ukraine and start with the basic question. Uh, there are a lot of different irons in this fire for Israel, but all overall, how's Israel doing? I think Israel's doing exceptionally well, and it's not just because I'm supposed to say nice things about the government of change. Let's remember that just like everybody else in the world, Israelis, and I think it's across the board, I saw some uh, polls this weekend in the Yedir Achronot that said 70% of even the Likud members felt tremendous empathy with the Ukrainian people. I know that the day after the uh, first day of the invasion, I went on the record on I-24 condemning this violation of, of international law. And we all, I think, at a very visceral level, I uh, feel that something horrible is going on and the, that Vladimir Putin is um, acting in, in a way which threatens the world order as we know it. And, and it, we hopefully that it'll be end quickly. Having said that, we also, I think, all recognize, and I think it's a consensus within Israel, that the situation is complex. Israel has responsibilities and interests which other Western countries don't have, two in particular. To start with, there are two to 300,000, some people say only 100,000 Russian Jews. Those Jews are our responsibility. That's the essence of Zionism. When we created a Jewish state, we took on responsibility for the well-being and welfare of Jews around the world, particularly in their hours of need. And therefore, we do not have the luxury of alienating and infuriating Vladimir Putin and making their lives uh, of, the, of our Russian brothers and sisters uh, significantly worse. And even more importantly, closing the line that might enable them to leave uh, Russia and move to Israel. So that's the first interest which we had to worry about. The second one is straight security. Right now, Israel enjoys, I think, if I'm quoting international sources, not internal sources, but we enjoy great freedom in the skies of Syria to pretty much do as we will. And Israel has done, I think, an exceptional job in making the Iranians pay for their ill-advised adventure uh, to the north of us. They have no business in Syria, the Iranians, and they can only do bad there. And Israel, I think, both in the previous Netanyahu administration and certainly now in the last uh, eight or nine months, has really hammered the Iranians because uh, that's a, a critical security interest in the long term. But we can only do that with the goodwill of the Russian uh, interlopers. And therefore, we have th this very, very fine line to walk. On the one hand, we really want to 
be on the right side of history and be with the forces of light and freedom. But at the same time, we have to do it in such a way which does not uh, jeopardize critical interests and the well-being of uh, Russian Jews. And I think that Prime Minister Bennett and uh, Foreign Minister Lapid have done just that. I'm happy to expand, but I think we're doing exceptionally well given the complexity of the situation. And even though people in Israel, I think some, and certainly among American Jews, look and say, yes, we understand the complexity of the Russians and Syrian skies and so forth. But at the end of the day, this is a potentially world-changing event. And Israel's just not loud enough and clear enough on the, side, on the right side of history. You would still say what you said. Well, yeah, the two or three points I'd like to make in that regard. First of all, we'll hear from Zelensky tonight and see what kind of a, a report card he gives us. But I do know of conversations that were reported in the Israeli press between the Foreign Ministry of Ukraine and Foreign Minister Lapid, in which he thanked Israel for playing some sort of a role of a mediator. It's not clear. And, and these are matters, as we say in Hebrew, that it's better to talk less about. But the fact is, is that if our Shomer Shabbat prime minister got on an airplane on Shabbat, spent three hours talking to Putin, and has kept that line of communication open from really the outset of the war, this is something which is uh, significant and obviously has the blessing of, of President Biden and the U.S. administration. There's no way that Bennett would have not have gone there without that blessing. So uh, that is something which I think we have to remember that Israel can make a unique contribution. And maybe we pay a price in terms of not being as um, dogmatic in the press and as being belligerent and, and, and self-righteous about our condemnation of Russia. But, but if we can indeed play some role as a mediator and, and save lives, well, then I think we, uh, it's a very good thing we're doing it. The second thing I want to talk about is what happened last week. Uh, certainly Israel was criticizing with some justification at the outset because it was just a little bit confused, I think, about its policy of refugees. But that has changed. And I want to say something about Yelit Shaked, who's a politician with whom I have many disagreements, most of all in the environmental field, an area which I'm very active. But in this case, I will say that uh, our interior minister uh, realized that the situation was uh, different than what she had thought, that the, the gravity of it and the, certainly the international expectations were different, and she changed her policy. That's not a sign of weakness. Adaptive management is smart management, and I think that what we got as a result of it was a policy which is, is balanced and one which I can sleep well with. If I can't uh, sleep well with it, I, I, I know who can, because last week uh, when the ambassador, uh, the Ukrainian ambassador to Tel Aviv, called her up. They met in a Tel Aviv coffee shop and he brought her flowers. So he was somebody who was quite critical in so much so that he was willing to join a Supreme Court petition against the interior ministry. And now he's bringing her flowers. So clearly there has been a shift. And that's a sign that Israel lives in a democratic society and she reads the papers and uh, her colleagues spoke with her and Israeli policy shifted. And I think today, uh, from my perspective, we have a, a reasonable policy that we could be proud of as a, as a, in a Jewish state. So what is the status of that policy today? Just give us a quick rundown of what Israel's doing about Jewish refugees, refugees who are related to Jews in some way or related to Israelis, and then refugees who are just human beings without any particular connection to Israel or the Jewish people. Okay, well, this is uh, uh, an interesting case. First of all, there are about, some people say 20,000, some people say more, Ukrainian uh, people who came to Israel on tourist visas and never left, Okay. There's a large Ukrainian population in Israel, at least 100,000 people. So they have where to hide with some of them, have friends, relatives or whatever. And um, that was sort of, let's set that as a background. But the policy that initially was set was really to say anybody who wants to come over from Ukraine has to make a, I think it was a $5,000 deposit. 
and and only then can they come in as a tourist. Now, Israel has an agreement with with Ukraine, which said that anybody can come as a tourist in the same way that any French person can come as a tourist or a, a Russian, for that matter. And so uh, there was something a little bit disingenuous about that to change that in their hour of need was was something unusual. That, of course, has been uh, canceled, and I think it was ill-advised. But what I, what is I can give you is the numbers as of last Wednesday. I didn't get them at the beginning of the week. But as of last Wednesday, 6,500 uh, Ukrainians who had no right to come to Israel as immigrants under the law of return showed up in Israel. And I think 421 were rejected. In other words, 4% of the people who came over uh, were not allowed in. And that was only people who were flagrantly uh, violating the Israeli law, mocking Israeli institutions, what it like. But the vast, vast majority, 96% of people came in. That's the first. And that's not talking about Jews that we've had. I think we're up to 3,000 immigrants. I, I, I'm not up to speed, but but there will be more, many, many more. And Bruchim welcome. That is indeed the, the raison d'etre of, of our country. But I think at present, Israel has set a, a quota. It's probably going to have to increase because this is something which is dynamic. We have to see. But when there's, you know, two, now maybe three million refugees, Israel needs to do its part. The international community stepping up to the plate and doing so. I think it would be well to quote uh, one of our senior ministers on this issue, Zev Elkin. Zev Elkin is, may have the highest IQ in the Knesset. He's a, he's a, he's a, a chess champion who managed to have uh, uh, a two-hour game with Kasparov when he was in the country. So he, he's a really bright man. And of course, also a Russian Jew by extraction, originally a Russian Jew. Yeah, and even more precisely, he grew up in Kharkov. So he is a Ukrainian Jew. His brother is there, his friends there, his life is there. So when he met with the Russian ambassador, and when he flew to, and he was the translator for Bennett at the meeting with, with Putin, it, it, he has been very dispassionate. But obviously, for him, this is intensely personal. But he makes the following point. I think it's be important for listeners to, to consider them that the likelihood of a deluge of refugees coming and changing the delicate demographic balance of Israel is extremely unlikely. And that's because, can you imagine the, the dilemma, the terrible dilemma, which a Christian Ukrainian feels who's sitting in Poland? He can take a free train to Switzerland or Germany or, or three or four other European countries and have three years guaranteed housing, support, jobs, all the embrace he could want. Or he can come for is to Israel for a three-month visa um, where he won't know the language. He'll be moving into uh, harm's way, at least from the way they perceive uh, the, uh, our troubled neighborhood, okay? He, um, the climate may be unhappy. What does he need that for? And he has to pay for the plane ticket, which is not, uh, not inexpensive. So there will people, be people come because they either Israel has some kind of appeal to them or because they have friends and family here. But it will not be an overwhelming number. And we shouldn't be... Uh, so uh, terrified of a deluge which is never going to happen. And I think that's an extremely important uh, point for us to remember when we can when consider a, um, I would say, a prudent and an ethical policy for what is really a, a tremendous humanitarian challenge. But I want to um, raise one point, uh, Danny, which maybe would be, be a bit more uh, controversial, but it's something which I know we feel in the Blue and White Party, and not only because the Minister of uh, absorption and uh, Aliyah, immigration and absorption, uh, Prina Tamanushata is from Ethiopia, but I think it's the spirit of our of our um, chair, uh, Benny Gantz, the defense secretary, who was very active in the uh, secret and uh, successful missions to bring Ethiopian Jews over. He was a 
an officer in those things. And, and, and the fact of the matter is, is that for over a year now almost, there has been a extremely bloody war going on in Ethiopia, which has had no less uh, traumatic impact on the civilian population. And the truth of the matter is, is that there is a large Ethiopian Jewish community in Israel, probably larger than the Ukrainian one. And they have a family and they have desires to bring people over. And there was no hue and cry and concern about their relatives or helping humanitarian there. So my feeling is, is that Israel needs to sort of to start making some public policy in this area and figure out what is our carrying capacity. It's not infinite. It's probably more than two or 3,000 uh, refugees a year, but it's probably not more than 20,000. We've got to support these people. We have very complicated uh, social uh, mosaic to, to balance, but we should do it and maybe try to be more colorblind when we do so. Because just because somebody has blonde hair or comes from Europe doesn't mean that they have a, a moral advantage over somebody whose shade of skin is a little darker. That's my own feeling, especially because of the Jewish peoples and the state of Israel's special relationship with Ethiopia. So that's my, that's my feeling. And I think it has something to do with uh, the blue and white policy as well. What kind of a national conversation do you think Israelis are having now about immigration? And what kind of a national conversation do you think Israelis need to have about immigration? Well, one of the things, if you read the press, is we are all reminded of the um, the trepidation, and in some sense, maybe the um, prejudice, which was expressed uh, 30 years ago, I suppose, when when the when the Iron Curtain collapsed and the and the Jews started to come over here en masse. and uh, there was great concern and there was stereotypes. But I think when we look back on it, we see the blessing that the Russian Aliyah has brought us. Uh, at the very least, it brought us all these phenomenal minds, which I think have been one of the main reasons that we're such a, a successful startup nation. I know that when I look at the, uh, my daughter went to the National School for the Arts, my middle daughter in Tel Aviv, over half of the, her friends, of the, of the kids going there are children of uh, former Soviet Union immigrants because they came with a commitment to culture. They enriched the, the quality of our orchestras and our cultural things. And they, I, who can imagine now Israel without those fantastic Russians? I'm here in the Knesset. There's a lot of them, and they're fantastic. I mean, they, we have our cultural differences, but I, I really think that they make a contribution. So I think Israelis are remembering that and fearing this uh, 100,000, 150,000, uh, we hope, wave of immigration. Now, let's get real about this. How many Jews are there in Ukraine? You know, Sergio de la Pergola is maybe the best demographer of our day, certainly the most senior. He claims 45,000 Jews in Ukraine. That's all. Okay, so so remember, this is not the the, the Russians that came in over a million numbers. It, it's going to be, uh, you know, not all of them will come. And in a good year, anyways, Israel gets 25,000 uh, Jews. There's very bad anti-Semitism in France. You might get 30. But there's not that big a reservoir there. And the Russians um, also... Uh, are very hesitant to come. And now they've limited the amount of money they can take out of the country. I don't think it's going to be quite as big a wave. But having asked that, you asked what is Israelis feeling about it? I think that Israelis are beginning to recognize that we are a wealthy, powerful nation. I think a lot of Israelis that, that can lend a hand to people. And as a, a nation also, which is based on a people which has such historic uh, traumas and, and such a long history of uh, persecution, perhaps we should be more sensitive and more open to it. There's no reason why Angela Merkel uh, and, or the, you know, the German government should have a policy which is more uh, compassionate than Israel. We should all be uh, on board with that issue. I think that's that is not actually where the, 
Is that actually where the electorate is? Because I was actually reading some polls over the course of Shabbat, which seemed to indicate that um, some 70-something percent were pretty much in favor of very strict limits. Some 30-something percent were actually in favor of uh, opening it up more. What's your sense as a politician and a member of Knesset of where, where, what the people would like to see happen now? My, my sense is, is that, yes, a majority of people do not want to have unlimited access to Israel. We, we have... Um, both economic constraints, it would be very hard for us. It would be irresponsible to some extent to take in so many people and not be able to treat them well. Better take fewer and do it right. That's my view also. Then the question, the, the, the million dollar question is how many? How many is, is enough? And uh, there might be some objective um, test. I would like to say, let's do this iteratively. Let's start with 5,000. Let's get them set up. Let's see what the situation is. If we see that there's going to be refugees for many years to come, or for a long period of time, we could probably take in more. We might want to be more selective. We might want to start setting criteria to make sure these people can come here and flourish and make a contribution. Because if they come, as in many people came illegally from Africa, without uh, the means and the training and the background to succeed here, they've created a very, very negative uh, um, feeling amongst those people that are suffering from their presence. So we do want people to come here and for us to be blessed by them and for them to be blessed by us. And, that, and that's something which might take a little longer. But immediately, initially, pretty much all Ukrainians, I think, who show up and are willing to take a three-month visa will get it. And then we'll kind of figure it out as we go along. That, but you're that, not expecting that anybody that comes on a three-month visa is really going to go back. Right? I mean, that's one of the very common questions people ask. They say, well, this three-month visa is a very nice idea, but we don't really have a very significant record in Israel of people coming for X number of months and then leaving. If they're here, they're here. Isn't that, isn't that more realistic? It may be. I think that given these, it's all a question of circumstances. In a, um, a typical period of time, uh, people from the Ukraine could come unlimited anyway, okay, to come see the sites or whatever. And yes, some of them have taken advantage of it. I don't think it's been disastrous. Nobody feels like there's a, a, a Ukrainian mafia, which is terrorizing the people, or that there's been some sort of a, you know, pockets of anti-Semitism because of the children of Kozaks. I don't know what, what might come out negative of, of, of there. But um, I think given the present circumstances, most Israelis are compassionate people. But I think we're also a pragmatic people. And so they'd say, yes, let's. But we're so far away from getting to those numbers, as I said before, of numbers of people who wouldn't be entitled to move here under the law of return, that I think that the um, initial concerns were just not based on a, on a, a real clear reaction vision of the reality. That's my feeling. But I think Israelis, for the most part, the collective wisdom is, is solid and it crosses all party boundaries. Okay. So I want to ask you one other question about uh, the immigration issue or the refugee issue. Then I want to come to one other piece of this uh, whole very complicated situation. Then I'll let you get ready to go, uh, get ready to go speak, uh, hear President Zelensky. Um, when it comes to the, when it comes to the, the refugees, you know, you were talking before about how much Russian immigrants, when the gates of the USSR opened up, how much they really enriched Israeli society. You talked about our orchestras, the high-tech industry. There's no question, you look in academia, I mean, they have really done exceedingly well. And you also mentioned, by the way, it's an interesting question for a different time. There are many of them um, represented in Israeli politics and quite a number in the Knesset also. And you pointed out you're the only American-born, American-raised member of Knesset. It's a fascinating phenomenon that, you know, Golda Meir being the the most famous ex exception, by and large, American Jews who've come to Israel have not gotten involved in the upper echelons of politics, but many Russians have. You're an exception. I really want to talk about that, but we'll do it at a different, at a different time. 
But why don't come back to the Russian, the Russian revolution? Danny, we're still waiting for you here. You just keep waiting right ahead. No, that's definitely not happening. But in any event, um, even though some people do say it, I, I, people that know me well know that I, I have way too thin a skin to be in the Knesset. That's seriously not happening. But, but that's very sweet of you. But nonetheless, um, you know, people used to joke about the Russians. What do you call a Russian immigrant that comes off the plane without a, without a, a violin case? They'd say it's a pianist. Right. So, uh, you know, they really did bring a tremendous amount of culture and, and love of opera. I, and, mean, I remember going and, to the and, opera. And a sense the of superiority. In other words, unlike other immigration waves who came in and felt that their um, almost obsession was to become more Israeli than everybody else and get rid of their accents and become the Russians kind of sense like, well, we we read Pushkin and we read Dostoevsky and we play, you know, Rachmaninoff and we're we don't need to become like every Israeli. And they had their own newspapers and and uh, their own television stations, but their kids, their kids are a huge success here and they are Israeli completely, so it's- Right, no, and I, I agree with you. I, I think they came with a definite sense of the culture that they wanted to bring. I actually have one very powerful, to me, very moving memory. I don't know if you remember, but that years ago, they used to do opera at Masada in the middle of the summer. Sure, I went And uh, my wife and I went one summer to see Carmen and, uh, you know, they did it, it's in the summer, so they, they would do it very late at night. I think the opera would start at nine or something like that, so that it would cool off at least a little bit. And you had to sign up for the package and you get the hotel and then a bus from the hotel to the opera, the opera ticket, and then whatever. And my wife and I were in the hotel and we're getting ready to go to the opera. It's, got, it's close to 100 degrees Fahrenheit outside. And I put on, I think, a pair of shorts and a very nice button-down short sleeve shirt. And my wife says to me, what are you doing? I said, well, we're going, we're going out. She goes, well, you're not going to the opera in shorts. I said, sweetie, it's 100 degrees outside. She said, you're not going to the opera in shorts. <laughs> so I put on a nice pair of shorts. Right. Very smart wife. But here's the thing. We get on the bus. The Russian Jews got on the bus in suits and ties. Of course. And I but I was very moved by that because what was really going on, they were saying, we know how you go to the opera. And yeah, it may be Masada and not Moscow. And it may be 100 degrees outside, not 70 degrees. But they have a sense of the dignity of culture that I found exceedingly moving that night. It was a very moving night in lots of ways. But the image in really almost 100 degrees of these Russian men and women, the men in suits and ties and the women really all bedecked, really was a, a profound statement of the nobility of the culture that they brought with them. And I still remember that as really a very, very powerful, almost chilling notion. But here's the underside. You and I also know that there are people who are doctors and there are people who are PhDs in chemistry who cleaned stairwells of buildings for many, many years. In other words, there's all the success stories, but there's a lot of not success stories. There's all those people who really uh, were forced into very, very menial labor because they didn't know Hebrew. They couldn't learn Hebrew during the day because they had to make a living. So because they were working and they weren't learning Hebrew. And there's some very sad stories there. And the question that I wanted to ask you is, are we better prepared this time? Has the country learned anything in terms of integrating immigrants? And we can go back to the Ethiopian question separately, perhaps. But when it comes to people from the former Soviet Union, Ukrainians or Russians now, are they going to be greeted by a country that is better prepared to enable them to work in their field, to learn Hebrew in a way that doesn't stop them from working so that fewer and fewer of them are doing the kind of menial labor, which many of us, our hearts broke watching them have to do the last time there was a wave of these people? That is a really good question. First of all, I think that throughout history, people who pick up and moved, it did so because there's always the push and the pull, okay? And it involved a certain risk. Look, my grandfather, a blessed memory, who I hold his picture with Menachem Begin here, he was a, a, 
a, um, a student or a follower of Jabotinsky. He moved to the United States, maybe the most brilliant man I ever met. And he worked in fruit stands and eventually worked his way up to being a carpenter. And finally, when, his, at his, when he finally had enough money to have, be able to do something, got his degree at the University of Judaism in Los Angeles. So, so the point is, is that all immigrants realize they're going to pay a price in transition, unless they're some of the lucky ones that are recruited by a Google because they happen to be a, a great programmer. I do believe, though, that the notion that we now live in a globalized economy and the world is flat and the ability to... Um, Hopefully they, they come with language skills that they didn't have before, certainly English language skills, which and the and the and the, uh, the robust high tech industry will allow some of them to do better. Certainly the medical professionals we've learned in Israel, Israel has a tremendous shortage of doctors. I um, sit on this the health committee of the Knesset. It's it's very frightening. We have the oldest doctors in the world because we just can't let them retire. And we were saved 30 years ago by the Russian doctors. And yes, they cleaned things, but eventually those who had the better education, the more qualified ones, did pass the Israeli medical exams. And they are still manning the wards and keeping the, the COVID patients healthy and whatever. And thank heavens they came in. Otherwise, we would be in a, in a dramatic loss. Remember, 60% of Israeli doctors studied abroad anyway, okay? So I would hope that those professionals, but yes, I assume that in many cases there will be those people who are not professionally um, fulfilled and are not self-actualized and they'll pay a price. But usually when they come, I think they're thinking about the next generation and will they be able to give their kids a better life? And I know because I, I read your columns and your books, we know how great it is to, um, to raise children in Israel. In fact, one of the things uh, you did mention is that not only we friends, but our, our children are friends, but together in the army. And 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 we know what an amazing place Israel is. And I think that I can look them in the eye and say, look, we will do what we can. And Israel does have, I think, uh, a more thoughtful and, and sensitive absorption policy than when I was there and went through it. And thank goodness for that. But even if we miss you, if you're doing this for some sort of a greater good for the future generations, you're in the right place because I think Israel's here to stay. And I think raising kids in Israel is the best place with all of its flaws. And it's amazing because the schools are not perfect and the army is tough and there's a million reasons why not. Something in the water, you, you know about it better than I do because you write about it so eloquently. But there is something here which I think we can give them, look them in the eye and say, you're not making a mistake, even if we don't succeed. And let's hope that we do better than this time. Uh, that's beautifully said. Let me ask you one last question before you head off to the president of Ukraine. Um, America and Israel. I mean, it's always been kind of a, a watchword that America has Israel's back. And I don't want to get into the question of Democratic presidents, Republican presidents. Let's leave all of that completely aside. But the, 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 the going sense has been that America has our back. Um, Amer Israelis are watching Ukraine. It's true, it's getting weapons and it's getting support in a lot of ways. But at the end of the day, the Ukrainians are battling for their survival on their own without any Western soldiers to speak of coming in. And it's making some Israelis that I talk to, especially our students here at Shalem College, who I'm chatting with people at the Shabbat table in the neighborhood, people are saying, you know, actually, that's us. Let's not let's not fool ourselves. If one day Iran crosses the nuclear threshold so people like the Americans and other allies are afraid of pushing back too hard and Iran starts to encroach on Israel in one way, shape, manner or form, we're on our own. At the end of the day, they'll send all kinds of nice things and they'll send weapons and there'll be, you know, there'll be declarations in the United Nations. But if we're learning anything from the Ukraine in February and March of 2022, it is let's not kid ourselves. We are in this business on our own. You share that sentiment? Professor Gordis, you have very smart students at Shalom College. I think when I think about Israel's sort of long term military strategy, 
we can just go back to Hillel HaZaken who said, Im mili. that's what it's all about. If we're not going to do it ourselves, myself, right. nobody's going to do it for us. And, and this is a justification. We look at that defense budget and believe me, we get a lot of heat in our party because it's a lot of money. And we say we want to bring good pensions so that the best and brightest of Israeli young people will want to stay in the army. There's a reason for that because only by maintaining that advantage will we be able to retain our uh, independence and our sovereignty here in this very, very, uh, how should they put it? Very tough neighborhood. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a cliche and it's absolutely true. And this, and there's nothing like this that's done. And I think not only that the scary thing is not only are we seeing what happens because of the um, inability of the West to stand up to Putin, given his nuclear capability. So is Iran seeing that. So is Saudi Arabia seeing that all these countries that are on the Egypt was seeing that. And they're saying, Hmm, I have some existential uh, challenges of my own, and I think I'll be able to better face them if I really do have the bomb. And, and that, I think this has been a, a bad time for people who are against nuclear proliferation because the lesson is clear and it doesn't favor the weak. So, um, so yeah, so I think your, your students are spot on. And what does it mean? It means we just have to keep on doing what we're doing and hope. And this is, I can only quote you, be one of the, my, my favorite Gordis quote is when he said, after the Abrahamic uh, Accords, the Arab-Israeli conflict is probably history. We have an Arab-Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but having this new neighborhood and partners who really have a common enemy and realize that Israel can be a valuable member of that coalition, that's really what we have to think about. Maybe we'll have one day a, a NATO presence here that we can be at the heart of, which will protect us against some the kind of ne'er-do-wells like, that exist now in Iran. Alon, thank you so much. I know it's a crazy busy week and a very busy day. Uh, I look forward to hearing from you sometime when we chat about what it feels like to be in the room listening to President Zelensky in a short while. Appreciate your taking the time. Thank you very much. And uh, good news and prayers for peace for all of us. Thanks so much. Be well. You've been listening to Israel from the Inside. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can hear more of these episodes. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Daniel Gordas.